Chapter 15, Part 2 of More Love to Thee, The Life and Letters of Elizabeth Prentice. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. More Love to Thee, The Life and Letters of Elizabeth Prentice, by George Prentice. Chapter 15, Part 2. Little incidents and details of her last days on earth, last visit to the woods, sudden illness, last Bible reading, last drive to Hager Brook, reminiscence of a last interview, closing scenes, death, the burial. Her last days on earth were now close at hand. Such days have in themselves of necessity no virtue above other days, and yet a tender interest clings to them simply as the last. Their conjunction with death and the life beyond seems to invest whatsoever comes to pass in them, even trifles light as air, with unwanted significance. Soon after her sudden departure, her husband noted down, for the satisfaction of absent friends, such little incidents and details as could be recalled of her last ten days on earth. The following is a part of this simple record. Sunday, August the 4th, 1878. Today she went to the house of God for the last time, and, as would have been her wish, had she known it was for the last time, heard me preach. There was much in both the tone and matter of the sermon that made it seem afterwards as if it had been written in full view of the approaching sorrow. A good deal of the day at home was spent in getting ready for her Bible reading on the ensuing Thursday. At four o'clock in the afternoon, she and the girls, M and H, usually drove in the Phaeton over to the Reverend Mr. Reed's on the West Road to attend a neighbourhood prayer meeting. But today, on account of a threatening thunder shower, they did not go. She enjoyed this little meeting very much. Monday, August the 5th. Soon after breakfast, she and the girls, we three girls, as she used to say, started off, carrying each a basket, for the Cheney Woods in quest of ferns, it having been arranged that at ten o'clock I should come with the phaeton to fetch her and the baskets home. The morning, although warm, was very pleasant, and all three were in high spirits. Before leaving the house, she ran up to her den, so she called the little room where she wrote and painted, to get something, and on passing out of it through the chamber where just then I was shaving, she suddenly stopped, and pointing at me with her forefinger, her eye and face beaming with love and full of sweet witchery, she exclaimed in a tone of pretended anger, How dare you, sir, to be shaving in my room? And in an instant she was gone. A minute or two later I looked after her from the window, and saw her, with her two shadows, hurrying towards the woods. At the time appointed, I went for her. She awaited me sitting on the ground on the further side of the woods, near the old sugar house. The three baskets, all filled with beautiful ferns, were placed in the phaeton, and we drove home. The Cheney Woods, as we call them, form one of the attractions of Dorset. They are quite extensive, abound in majestic sugar maples, some of which have been tapped, it is said, for more than sixty successive seasons. And at one point in them is a watershed dividing into two little rivulets, 
one of which, after mingling with the waters of the Battenkill and the Hudson, finds its way at last into the Atlantic Ocean, while the other reaches the same ocean through Paulet River, Lake Champlain, and the St. Lawrence River. These woods and our own, together with the mountain and waterfall and groves beyond Deacon Kellogg's, where she often met her old friend, Uncle Isaac, were her favourite resorts. A little while after returning home, I found her in her little room, looking well and happy and busy with her brush. The girls also, on reaching the house, found her there. But somewhat later, without our knowledge, she went out and worked for a long time on and about the lawn. There was a breeze, but the rays of the sun were scorchingly hot, and she doubtless exerted herself, as she was always tempted to do, beyond her strength. I was occupied until noon at the mill, and later, in the field, watching the men cradling oats. On coming in to dinner, a little past one, I was startled not to find her at the table. "'Where is Mamma? said I to Em. "'She's not feeling very well,' Em answered, and said she would not come down as she did not want any dinner. I ran upstairs, found her in her little room, and asked her what was the matter.' She replied that she had been troubled with a little nausea and felt weak, but it was nothing serious. I went back to the table, but with a worried, anxious mind. Somewhat later she lay down on the bed, and the prostration became so great that I rubbed her hands vigorously and administered hartshorn. It occurred to me at once that she had barely escaped a sunstroke. After rallying from this terrible fit of exhaustion, she seemed quite like herself again, and listened with much interest while the girls read to her out of Boswell's Johnson. She was in a sweet, gentle mood all the afternoon. I prayed this morning, she said, that I might be a comfort today to everybody in the house. Tuesday, August the 6th. She passed the day in bed, feeble, but otherwise seeming still like herself. In the course of the morning, we persuaded her to let Margaret, Eddie's old nurse, make her some milk toast, which she enjoyed so much that she said, Wish, Margaret, you were well enough to come and be our cook. M had taken the place of our two servants, who were gone to East Dorset to a confirmation, at which their bishop was to be present. Throughout the day she was in a very tender, gentle mood, as she had been on the previous afternoon. She was much exercised by the sudden death of the mother of one of our servants, the news of which came while they were away. Had the case been that of a near relative, she could hardly have shown warmer sympathy or administered consolation in a more considerate manner. During the day there was more or less talk about the Bible reading, and I begged her to give it up. We finally agreed that the girls should drive over to Mrs. Reed's and ask her to take charge of it. They did so, but at Mrs. R.'s suggestion, it was decided not to give up the meeting, but to convert it, if needful, into a little service of prayer and praise. This arrangement seemed to please her. Although feeling very weak, she did not appear at all depressed and was alive to everything that was going on in the room. The girls having written to a friend who was to visit us the next week, she asked if they had mentioned her illness. They both replied no, for each supposed the other had done it. Then, said she, you had better add a postscript, 
telling her that I lie at the point of death. Wednesday, August the 7th. A beautiful day. She got up, put on a dressing gown, and sat most of the day in the easy chair, or rather the sea chair, given us by my dear friend Mr. Howland when we went to Europe in 1858. She looked very lovely, and we all enjoyed sitting and talking with her in her chamber. The girls arranged her hair to please their own taste, and then told her how very charming she was. She liked to be petted by them, and they were never so happy as in petting and fussing about her. She spent an hour or two in looking over a packet of old agriculturalists that had belonged to her brother-in-law, Prof. Hopkins, of Williams College. She delighted in such reading, and nothing curious and interesting or suggestive escaped her notice. She called my attention to an article on raising tomatoes, and cut it out for me, and also cut out many other articles for her own use. Towards night she dressed herself and came down to tea. She remained in the parlour, talking with me and the boys, and reading the paper, until the girls returned from the Wednesday evening meeting. Something had occurred to excite their mirth, and they came home in such a gale that she playfully rebuked them for being so light-minded. But at the same time, she couldn't help joining in their mirth. In truth, she was quite as much a girl as either of them, and her laugh was as merry. Thursday, August the 8th. She seemed to feel much better this morning. Before getting up, we talked about her Bible reading, and she asked me various questions concerning the passage that was to be its theme, namely, John fifteen twenty-seven. She referred particularly to our Lord's sayings at the beginning of the 16th chapter on the subject of persecution, and told me how very strange and impressive they seemed to her, coming, as they did, in the midst of his last conversation with his disciples, a conversation so full of divine tenderness and love. This was almost the last of innumerable and never-to-be-forgotten talks which we had had together during more than a third of a century upon passages of Holy Scripture. After breakfast she went to her workshop and painted six large titles, then went down to the piazza and painted a chair for Hattie. She also assisted the girls in watering her flowers. She came round to the back stoop Thursday morning, one of the servants told me afterwards, and I said to her, Miss Prentice, and how'd you feel? And she said, Ellen, I feel weak, but I shall be all right when I get my strength. I still felt troubled about her holding the Bible reading, and tried to dissuade her from attempting it. She had set her heart upon it, however, and said that the disappointment at giving it up would be worse than the exertion of holding it. Her preparation was all made, the ladies would be there, some of them from a distance, expecting to see her, and she could not bear to lose the meeting. So I yielded. We were expecting Dr. Vincent by the afternoon train, and I was to go to the station for him. Just as I was seated in the carriage and was about to start, she came out on the porch, already dressed for the Bible reading, and with an expression of infinite sweetness, half playful and half solemn, pointing at me with her finger, said slowly, You pray one little prayer for me. Never shall I forget that arch expression, so loving, so spiritual, and yet so stamped with marks of suffering, 
the peculiar tones of her voice, or that dear little gesture. End of chapter 15 First part of part 2